Problem solving is hunting. It is savage pleasure, and we are born to it. Thomas Harris. Welcome to Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. This is episode three. Uh, it is being recorded the day after episodes one and two, and they have yet to be published, so I have no feedback or questions to answer. My name is Preston Floyd, and I am your host. Um, today we'll be going over our toolkit that I laid out in episode one, how that changed a little bit over time, when it did, and where we were in our peopling of Africa while these changes were happening. We will also go a little bit more in-depth into Africa's climate at the time, the animals we would be encountering, and the resources we would have access to. Finally, we will discuss how all these factors changed how we thought and interacted with our world and ourselves before we reach the threshold of behavioral modernity. For thousands of years, innumerable days and nights, our ancestors woke and worked on simply surviving. This was their natural state of being. But this was not just a basic instinct for them. Or if it was, it wasn't that way for long. They, like earlier hominids, had a deep capacity for thought. And so in a harsh, uncaring world, they harnessed this trait for survival the same way as an eagle does its wings, talons, and beak, or a lion its fangs, claws, and sinews. We had probably inherited our simple use of tools from our predecessor species, and we would continue to refine their creation and use as time was on. But there doesn't seem to be any major factor or despite uh, or desire for us to really advance our toolkit for the first 150, 100,000 years we were traipsing around Eastern Africa. However, around 200,000 years ago, something changed in the world. The penultimate glacial period was beginning. Now, all ice ages are made up of several smaller periods of time in which glaciers covered much or more of our world year round, which leads to a colder, drier planet. Close to anatomically or anatomically modern humans were probably around during two or three of these periods during our development and peopling of the world. The penultimate glacial period would last from about 200,000 uh, 200, to 135,000 years ago. Now, as I laid out in episode one, Africa is actually spared from most of the extreme climate changes uh, at this time, but there are some effects that we would have to deal with. By the time this glacial period hit, we would have had Homo sapiens split into four main groups, the East African group, the two groups in the southeast and southwest of Africa, and the Central African group. The rainforest of Central Africa would be the most affected place that Homo sapiens would be living in at that time. Essentially, the rainforest in that area would shrink to cover a much smaller area, and there would be more of a temperate forest in areas where the rainforest retreated. Um, now, we discussed food generally on the last episode, but now we're going to go into specifics. We were omnivores and ate whatever we could. It's important to remember that we were eating plants like wild nuts, berries, fruits, roots, leafy green vegetables, etc. And they would have made up most of what we were eating day to day. Uh, that being said, why is meat eating highlighted in a lot of our talk about our evolution? Obviously, we have more knowledge about that because the butchered and prepared bones of animals stick in and around the archaeological record much better than plant remains. 
But the main reason is it was the pursuit, cooking, and consumption of meat that led to most of the major changes in our behavior in our earliest history. Uh, the most you have to learn about nuts and berries is simply if they can be eaten. Most can be picked up or fall off trees. You don't need much know-how to know to har how to harvest them. Um, this would be true of bugs and insects as well. Essentially, you know, grubs, worms, if you can eat them, you can eat them. There's no big mystery to them. For an early, for an early Homo sapien to acquire meat would be much harder to do. Even if they got lucky and found a freshly dead animal, maybe it died of its wounds from another predator, it would still require more work to make a meal comparable to just gorging on you know, a lot of edible plant life. Why then did we put so much effort into looking for it? I think there are very simple answers to this question. The first and most obvious is that we liked it. And I'm not just referring to the taste of meat though I do think that was part of it. Taste, in general, is a very personal matter. But I mean, we enjoyed the act of hunting itself. I think it scratched an itch in the human brain. The second main re reason I think we gravitated to regular meat consumption is the climate. During the penultimate glacial period, there was less rain, and that meant less numerous plants we would need to survive. So we'd have to supplement our diet with more meat. The third major factor we turn to eating meat would be for protection. Humans are not the only species to kill for reasons other than food. Dolphins will kill porpoises in very painful ways for fun and for a small diet overlap. Elephants and water buffalo will kill predators and their juveniles. We would kill for those exact same reasons except we would eat the kill because, again, we're omnivores. So, what are the animals we're eating at this time? Well, for smaller animals, we are probably hunting things like rodents, rabbits, lizards, birds, small monkeys, and we would be hunting these with sharpened stones um, and things like that. I don't think our large uneven spears would be accurate enough to hit anything that size unless we were right on top of it, uh, right on top of it or within thrusting range. So you might kill one or two with that weapon, but you know, probably not too too many. You'd, you'd want to use um, stones and large amounts of them. Um, that being said, that can't have been very efficient. Um, you know, you might get lucky and ambush a few of these at like a small water source, or when you're performing another task. But you're not organizing you're not organizing a hunter a hunting party for this. Um, so you might use that you might use those kind of kills to supplement your meat source. Um, but unless you know where they have a cave or a den, um, you're you know you're not going to be spending a huge amount of time as a large group hunting for those. Um, we also don't have any evidence of using traps for hunting, things like that, at this point. Uh, that comes along later. But our biggest game, the things that we would have been most actively hunting as a group, would be larger, slower herbivores. The main reason for this is that if you managed to kill one, you could supplement your group's food for a couple of days. 
there's also the factor that our uh, simple spears at this time would be much more effective as the targets were larger and thus easier to hit. Um, the cost benefit for this kind of animal is high. The specific type of animals uh, we would be looking for would be things like deer, zebra, giraffe, oxen, antelopes, uh, ungulates, things like goats, that matter. Uh, maybe some elephants, some smaller ones. Um, they were probably smaller in the central part of Africa. Um, and there are other extinct species now that we might have been hunting for. Uh, these are animals that travel in large herds, so they're numerous and easy to follow. They would also draw the attention of other predators. It's probably from watching these predators that we learn to hunt faster, more mobile prey. Lions, of course, being the apex predators of Africa, even at that time, uh, they would be worthy subjects of study. As would wolves, which were more numerous in Africa. Um, and if our later adoption of these animals as motifs and symbols of power and strength and cunning is anything to go by, it's easy to see that these creatures were respected and feared. Hyenas and jackals probably did not elicit this, this same type of respect. They're scavengers and would probably be a constant menace to human, human kills and food sources. They would be feared and hated, but never respected. We would, like lions, wolves, and the Neanderthals before us, be ambush hunters. We would find our prey and pick a place where we could hide. Then most of the group would wait there while a small number would get as close as possible before attacking and driving them toward the hidden group members. Then they would launch their own attacks. Most of these attacks would miss, and the hits these people did land would probably not be fatal. The spears and rocks we would be throwing wouldn't have the piercing power at the ranges we would be attacking from, but the animals would be hurt and they would be bleeding. We would then follow the injured animal, and provided that no predators got in our way, we would get in close once the animal had collapsed or could run no longer and then attack from all sides, downing the animal. We would then proceed to butcher it, and you know some would probably be eaten there, and then the rest would be returned to the group. Now this process led to humans living in that time to be extremely well conditioned. They would be the original long distance runners. And while not able to run as fast as most of the prey they chased in short distances, they would be able to keep up their speed for longer distances. Not able to smell, see, or hear as well as other predators, we would eventually become fantastic trackers able to track animals from their individual tracks and the impact they made on the environment around them. Things like broken sticks, trees, brush, things like that. Some people's never lost the skill. Some would relearn it. Now as we were killing more and more animals for meat, we were also gaining their bones and their hide. Early on, bones would be used in a very similar manner to stone. But what about animal skin? Would we be using that for leather that early? Now, it would by no means be high quality, and there would be no small stitch pieces, and it would not smell nearly as nice as what you could find today. But there are a couple of items to back this up. First and foremost, we have found stone tools that are crude, 
but do appear consistent with a very basic leatherworking kit. These items have been dated to be about anywhere between 120 to 90,000 years old. We also see genetic evidence that around 125,000 years ago, head lice began to be genetically distinct from body lice. Now, the start of those dates are around 10,000 years or so after the penultimate glacial period ended, but I doubt we found the first set of leather working tools ever made. So I don't think it's crazy to assume that by the middle or end of the penultimate glacial period that we were wearing at least small amounts of leather and hide to stay warm or for comfort. It's also probable that lice didn't evolve into two separate groups overnight. So I think it's safe assumption that we were at least making leather or hide pouches to carry tools and materials by this time. We would have been using large leaf plants for similar purposes prior to this. But hide or leather pouches would be more suitable for this because they're obviously more durable and because the weather affecting our food sources longer journeys between uh, living locations would be a real possibility. Now you might wonder how they discovered how to make leather. I'm willing to bet actually pretty easily. All you need to do to get simple leather is to treat collagen with tannic acid. Now obviously our ancestors didn't know what collagen or tannic acid were, but they didn't need to. Collagen makes up a major percentage of skin, I think it's like 90%, and tannin is found in a huge number of plants and nuts. Even if you aren't treating animal hides, the skin would be usable for a couple of weeks before it started to rot. And everything would stink then, so I doubt anyone would notice. Um, so you have a couple of weeks carrying different items around uh, with a wrapped up animal skin. And you open them to see the skin carrying your bark nuts, woods, etc. is holding up way better than the skin carrying just say stones or whatever else. And you would wonder why and you'd start to play around with why. Eventually a thousand years later you get simple reliable leather. Also less rainfall happening would make this process easier as well. You can't treat wet animal skin, it has to be dried first. Uh, but with less rain, you know, you, you'd have, you know, or drier pelts. You wouldn't necessarily be drying them out in the sun, at least at first. Now you may argue, why would nomads be carrying all this extra stuff around? Wouldn't they just take food? Um, well, no. As it happens, there is a very interesting theory that part of the reason that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens eventually replaced Homo erectus was because we recognized a difference in quality and tool-making material. And they either could not or would not do the same. There is evidence that Homo sapiens would carry stones they found in mountains miles and miles away because they were the best tool for the job. We would also continuously use tools until they were broken and so tended to carry them with us. Homo erectus would abandon items much more readily uh, and then just they decide to make a new one later. Uh, this apparent laziness, uh, for lack of a better term, would make it a lot harder for them to adapt to numerous factors, including climate change. Which brings us back to the end of the penultimate glacial period. 
As I stated earlier, ice ages are made up of several periods where glacier coverage expands and contracts. However, there were relatively shorter segments between these periods that were closer to what we live with today. For earlier Homo sapiens, there was only one other period of time uh, that when it comes to temperature and precipitation was on average similar to what we live with today. This time frame is known by several names. The Emian, the Ipswichian, Riswurm, Sangamonian, or penultimate interglacial period, uh, just to name a few. And all these names are based on uh, ge uh, geography. Basically, um, depending on where you live, the meaning can shift by a thousand years or so. So, you know, locally it's referred to um, by these different periods because it covers that specific time frame. Um, I'm just going to be calling it the Emian. It's way easier and, you know. So, by 130,000 years ago, the Emian period has begun. The Sahara was probably in or about to begin a green period. And the West African group of Homo sapiens, or at least the group that ended up in West Africa, had left our initial Eastern African ranges behind, and they would quickly inhabit the new ranges that are opening up. <clears throat> so, at this point in time, we have an expanded toolkit that includes hide and leather. But there's a major factor that we haven't talked about at all. Uh, I know I touched on briefly societal, gender roles, all that crap in the first episode. But what about speech and language? Isn't that one of the most important factors to us being us? How have we survived as long as we have without the use of language? Well, here we're getting into a maze of theories and guesswork. Physically speaking, we should have been able to speak like we do today from the moment we evolved. We had the hyoid and vocal cords needed. Um, the only thing really preventing us from doing more than making a random noise was our own brains. Now, I'm all for a good philosophical debate, and we are going to have episodes discussing philosophical tracks. But not this episode, and not this topic. Some truly huge names have stepped into the ring when it comes to how to explain the development of human languages. Uh, names like Charles Darwin, Noam Chomsky, Michel Foucault, Claude W. Strauss, and me other, many others have all put forward ideas about how and why languages exist. The problem I have with most of these explanations is that once they lay out their theories, some of which make complete sense, uh, and I can easily you know, imagine being the correct explanation, they begin to try and tie their theory into events that happen a couple of hundred years later to support a point of view on a completely different subject or as proof of their theory, ignoring the entirety of history of said events outside of linguistics. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and say we were making sounds to communicate from the start. We were probably also communicating with hand gestures as well. There are a lot of animals that have this type of communication. They will have different sounds for different types of threats or a sound they make to convey distress or pleasure. Or they will shake a tail or arch their back or roll a fin out of the water. 
our first communications were no different from any of that. What I think led us to develop our communication past that level is our need to convey and identify specifics, either of food or tools. Um, say, you know, you are going somewhere and your sister in your group is going somewhere else. Uh, where you're going, you know there's not going to be a specific type of stone, so you ask your sister to get you that stone. Well, how do you tell her exactly? You can just say, give me a rock, but that doesn't explain, do you need a rock that is easily to sharp, uh, easier to sharpen, or do you need a rock that you can use to break or grind stuff in? Um, just that is a rough example. Um, just basically, it's you. You we kind of developed a way to tell someone specifically what either was needed, either food-wise, tool-wise, or um, maybe specify the prey or um, predator that you're dealing with. Um, again, these are just simple examples, and this is very rough, and it kind of takes a couple of ideas from a few different language theories, but. Um, whatever the case may be, once we had language, I think our use of it exploded. And I think all humans uh, would have developed a language uh, no later than 100,000 years ago. These would not be very complex. They'd be very simple, just a, you know, basically a collection of vocabulary words, uh, nouns, and verbs, you know nothing nothing crazy uh, and I think it would have been easy for different groups to learn the other's language which probably again helped you know push the language forward and develop uh, in all directions um, so once languages develop this is going to be a major tool that is going to help us reach what is known as behavioral modernity uh, this is a kind of a theory or concept that is used to distinguish uh, current Homo sapiens from uh, earlier hominids and primates, as well as from our anatomically modern ancestors, who we've been discussing basically the first, you know, three and a half episodes. Personally, I don't find the term all that useful when it comes to discussing our earlier ancestors. Uh, honestly, it's not all that useful for differentiating us between Neanderthals and Denisovans, really. Uh, it's more useful for separating us from other primates or possibly earlier hominids. Personally, I don't see a huge behavioral difference in the first person to cave paint on a wall from their parents the first person to string beads together from their parents. Still, if there was a point that we crossed over into behavioral modernity, it happened much earlier than we currently give credit for, and the things that are kind of considered the beginning points for behavioral modernity, things like burial, art, jewelry, uh, ritual, those things, I think, were actually midpoints 
for behavioral modernity, not the beginning. But that is enough for this episode. Uh, thank you all for listening. Um, next week we will be getting into uh, the Emian period and the last Ice Age. And of course we'll be going over some of our changes that happened to us at that point. Uh, then the week after that, uh, I believe, will not be a regular episode. I'll probably still be scripting and um, might might need two weeks for that, but we'll see. But in the meantime, I will have a couple of uh, filler kind of meta episodes I had mentioned in our introduction. Uh, basically, I'll just be kind of doing pop culture type deals uh, that are you know, about, in general, the subject. I think uh, Quest for Fire and the other is going to be uh, a game, I believe it's called Ancestors Odyssey. Um, basically, you play an early hominid and you try to survive long enough to evolve. Uh, and I'll be going over you know, both of those things um, in just kind of a little brief, fun detail. I might have a guest or something for one or two of those. We'll see. Um, but again... Uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I do look forward to your feedback. Pardon the quick edit there. A car accident just happened. Um, but yes, you can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. That's W-A-R-A-D-R-E-V-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.